This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we had the opportunity to speak with Mary Purdy, MSRDN, who is an award-winning integrative eco-dietitian and nutrition educator with a master's degree from Bastyr University in Seattle, Washington, where she has been adjunct faculty since 2015. She teaches and lectures for numerous universities, institutions, and professional educational platforms and is a regular speaker at national and state conferences on both nutrition and sustainability. She has been in clinical practice for over 13 years, using a personalized medicine and functional nutrition approach, and is currently the nutrition and sustainability advisor and community builder for Big Bold Health, led by Dr. Jeffrey Bland. She is also the director of education for the Planetary Health Collective, which serves to leverage the skill sets of nutrition professionals in the movement around the climate crisis. Additionally, she regularly moderates educational panels, hosts the podcast, The Nutrition Show, and The Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, and authored the books, Serving the Broccoli Gods and The Microbiome Diet Reset. She adores kale, chocolate, and avocados. This was such a wonderful conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Now onto the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to chat with you today. A lot of your interests like perfectly align with what I'm really passionate about. So um, I'm really excited to be connected with you and to host you on our podcast. Thank you, Amanda. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here, actually, and honored that you reached out to me. So thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I would love to just jump right into your story. Um, in the bio that I recorded for you, I do mention eco-dietitian. I would love for you to describe what an eco-dietitian is and then how you got involved in like the environment and uh, how you intersected that with dietetics. Yes. And, and when it comes to this word, eco-dietitian, this is essentially three letters, eco, that I put in front of my title, dietitian. And I essentially did this because I feel like we can no longer separate environmental health from human health. Um, how the environment is, how the environment is affected is going to affect human health. And when it comes to food or diet or nutrition, the way the environment is affected by how we grow our food is going to affect the quality of that food. And the choices that we make about the food that we grow or the food that is being grown um, in our system is having already an effect on the environment. So I simply cannot talk about food and cannot talk about health without talking or at least a without including or looking through the framework of environmental health as well. So that's essentially a, a, a couple points about that. Oh, and then you wanted to know, well, how the heck did I get into this? So I, I think basically, I, mean, I, I was a dietitian working in the clinical realm for about um, 13 years and uh, you know, talking with patients, working with, uh, with a real personalized metal medicine approach, a functional integrated nutrition approach, and um, which I loved. I loved working with, with patients to try and figure out what was going on for them and help them um, remedy some of their issues um, or prevent them. But I think when... The, the climate crisis started coming much more into focus for me, which was right around 2017. I've always been a conservationist, but really sort of thinking, gosh, this is a huge issue. And this is probably the, the greatest existential issue of our time. And when I started realizing, wow, the food and agricultural system is responsible for about a third of our global greenhouse gases and is also responsible for uh, contributing to massive amounts of environmental degradation, um, I thought this is a place where I can actually make a difference, not only because I can do something about it, but because I can connect the dots as somebody who knows about human health, as somebody who understands why micronutrients are important, why uh, phytochemicals, which are plant chemicals and these compounds that are protective to our bodies, why that's important. And I've had 13 years of talking with people about how to change behavior. So 
wow, wouldn't this be a perfect opportunity to come in and help people understand that how we grow our food has an impact on human health? And then how do we facilitate change in a way that's really realistic without any finger pointing because no one likes that or scolding and um, and really empower people, systems, institutions to uh, to be strong agents of change? That's amazing. I love that you put together human health and planetary health. That's something that I'm very passionate about right now. I mean, growing up on Whidbey Island, I had so much nature around me. So of course I had a love for it and then conservation as well. Um, And it's just so funny because sometimes in medicine or science, we get a little frustrated by um, study designs because it's like, okay, well, you can't grow something in a Petri dish because the environment around it has changed. Like you can't take a human out of the environment and into a Petri dish and like call it health. Like everything affects our health. So I really love that you have that perspective. I would love for you also to just describe to us what is the connection between soil health and human health? Because a lot of us haven't heard that before. Yeah. I think a lot of us go to our grocery stores we grab our carrots or we grab our cereal or we grab our beverage of choice and we don't necessarily interact with anything that's natural, right? Everything's put into mostly a package of some kind. So we don't think of food or nutrition as being related to dirt. And in fact, historically, we've always tried to get away from dirt. You know, you go home, you wash your vegetables, you try and get all the dirt off of them, you scrub things. But the fact is that the the soil is what we're growing our food in. And so the soil health, which is essentially looking at well, what, what's in the soil, there's all kinds of, or there should be, there should be all kinds of microorganisms. This is bacteria. This is the good bacteria. This is a fungi. This, there's actually a whole network underground that is occurring. And all of that, all of that, that activity in the soil beneath the ground, beneath our feet is essentially helping to feed the plants, these micronutrients, these vitamins, these minerals, as well as uh, a, 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 a way for the plant to actually produce these phytochemicals, these protective compounds that help the plant to be more nutritious and therefore help us to be more healthy as humans when we consume those plants. And so we cannot, again, separate soil health from human health because how we grow our food in and what the health of that soil is ultimately determining that the health of that plant, which determines the health of us when we consume that plant. Could you give us some examples of what kind of nutrients can be found in the soil and then how they affect the plants that are being grown and then how it affects our bodies? Yeah. Oh, I love that question. And, and just to, to note, I'm not a soil scientist, so I, I, I've studied as much as I possibly can, but I, you know, I didn't get a, get, a, get a degree in soil science, but I do love this story of, you know, there's this wonderful relationship happening underneath the ground. Uh, the plants are, are, are only going to be able to reach so far underneath into the soil to, to get the nutrients. And we're talking about nutrients like there's the, the nitrogen, there's the phosphorus, there's the calcium that's in the soil. There's all kinds of minerals. There's zinc, there's iron, there's magnesium. Those are all in the soil. Now the plant is hanging out and it's like, gosh, my roots cannot reach all the way over to grab that nitrogen. My roots cannot reach all the way over to grab that phosphorus. So there's some fungi. There's a whole network of fungi and bacteria who are like, hey, plant, I'm over here to help. Let me let me grab some of that nitrogen for you. But in exchange, I would like a little something from you. The plants are like, sure, what do you want? We'd like, and the and the bacteria said, we'd like some exudates. These are these uh, these molecules, these compounds that the plant will then spit out or squeeze out um, in exchange for these nutrients that are in the soil that the fungi will deliver to them. So there's this wonderful relationship happening underground that is beneficial to both the plant and uh, the the microbial life that that exists there as well. And something that's really fascinated me recently is not only are we seeing the effect of the soil health on the plants, but the amount of carbon in the air. So with climate change, the more CO2 we have in the air, the more starchy our vegetables and plants are getting. So we're actually losing a lot of the micronutrients because it's mostly carbohydrates. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, we, we we do want carbon in the soil. I mean, that's one of the great 
reasons that soil can be seen as like a climate change or climate crisis mitigator because we can store, we, we want more soil to be able to store carbon. But yes, there has been a shift in that carbohydrate content, which may be having some of the um, the implications around the chronic diseases that we are seeing in our, in our society that may uh, be affected by high carbohydrate intake. So I think we're going to continue to see more research coming out on that as well. And this is just a prediction that I have. I haven't looked into it very much, but Please. I, I'm pretty sure that I've heard that we have a lot of different like sensors in our guts, specifically for, I mean, fats and then carbohydrates and sugars. So, but I, I'm sure we have some like micronutrient sensors in our guts as well. And if we're not getting enough nutrients out of the food that we're eating, we probably have like a continuous need to eat because we are nutrient depleted. Um, so that drives our like hunger, which could t potentially be leading to the massive amounts of calories that we're consuming because our bodies just don't feel nourished. I don't think that's a theory at all. I think that is actually totally, that's totally factual. Okay. I mean, the, the fact is that every single chemical process in our body that, and that's just like you, you creating serotonin or your liver is creating enzymes so that you can uh, neutralize pathogens or bacteria that come in there or toxins that come in there. Now, all of those processes, if we go back to biochemistry for anybody out there who loves their biochemistry, I love biochemistry um, because it like explains life. Um, every single reaction in our body is contingent, is relying upon nutrients to, to happen. So if we don't have enough magnesium or zinc or iron, there's a million reactions that are happening in our body that need those those particular micronutrients. So when that doesn't happen, our body doesn't function as well. And very often it's not about the deficiency, right? Very often we learn in nutrition classes, oh, if you're deficient in this, you're going to get scurvy or you're going to have very, very, you know, these very, very severe diseases. But oftentimes it's not about a deficiency. It's about a lack of sufficiency or perhaps an insufficiency. So we aren't getting the actual uh, sufficient amounts that our body needs to function optimally. And yes, we are left with this deficit where our body goes, what the heck? I, I don't have enough food. So I, I don't have enough nutrients. I need to eat more food. We see this in animal studies actually all the time that they, they've done studies where uh, cows will actually eat more of the grass that uh, is more nutrient depleted because of the various agrochemicals that have been applied to the soil. So the, the animals will have to eat more to feel like they're getting sufficient amounts of nutrients. I wanna mention one more thing that you mentioned, which is terms of the, uh, sensors in the gut, because I think this is fascinating. Yes, the gut has sensors, obviously, for what we just talked about, micronutrients, but the gut also has sensors for things like bitter flavors. So when we eat things that are bitter, Sometimes, you know, bitter is a way for our bodies to go, oh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's quite right. I don't know if that, I know, I don't know if I'm eating the right thing. The gut actually has sensors in its, uh, in its, uh, I'm not even sure where, where they are, probably on the, in, in the lining somewhere, where when they sense something that's bitter, they actually send signals to the brain. Um, there, there are signals about blood sugar regulation, and there's actually bitter sensors all over our bodies. So this is, again, a reason why uh, foods and the taste of food matters to our metabolic function. It's a really complex, you know, orchestra of, of, uh, of, of musicians playing all different kinds of, of songs in our body, and it's all coming together beautifully. Yeah, I love that. I also do love biochemistry. That's what got me to become a yeah. chemistry major in undergrad was nice. my biochem class. So you explained a lot of interesting things about like the biochemistry and how our bodies work and nutrient deficiencies. And I know that it's probably personalized because some people might be a little bit zinc deficient or some people might not be getting enough magnesium. But in general, um, what do you usually recommend people focus on in their diets? Well, it's going to depend. I think, I think that's the phrase I say the most often is it depends because it depends on who you are, what your medical issues are, what your background is, um, what your diet is already like, um, maybe what supplements you're taking, what medications you're on, all of those things will factor into what your status is and maybe what your particular needs are. So I, I think the, the one of the best things we can do when it comes to diet and nutrition is to find ways to eat as close to the source as possible. 
So how do we move people away from the more ultra processed foods and get them just back to the basics of eating a peach, a carrot? Of course, we like to flavor these things as well, but the fewer foods that are have been altered from their original form, the better. I would say that's one place to, I mean, there's a million different recommendations that can be given, but I think if we just go back to, gosh, how can I make my diet more simple? Not less delicious, but just more simple. I mean, I eat a simple diet and I freaking love it, right? I mean, give me a, give me a little basil, give me a little garlic. I'm happy. I don't need to do a whole bunch of stuff. So um, I would say we, starting there is a really great place. Thank you. Thank you for describing that. I that's generally what I give um, my patients the advice for is uh, just eat whole foods <laughs> because it can be so difficult with all of these diet wars. Um, like, should I be keto or paleo or vegan or vegetarian? And I think the main problem with the general population right now is just the amount of advertising for processed foods and how much money people can make off of processed foods. So of course, those are the ones that are going to be pushed um, instead of whole foods, like you said, right back to the source. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's not, you know, a lot of advocacy for broccoli, right? I mean, maybe, maybe there's like a broccoli board out there. There's an avocado board out there, but, the, but there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, of, uh, of money going into these foods that are ultra processed. And again, here's where I make that connection. Many of these ultra processed foods are the very foods that are being grown in a way that is very detrimental to our environment, hurting the soil, hurting um, air quality, um, particularly in areas where people are are living uh, who are often um, historically marginalized communities. So there's there's so much connection between not it's not just about our health and eating in a way that supports our bodies and gives us the best energy that we can possibly have and hopefully disease prevention, but eating in this way that also supports um, environmental health. And, uh, and that's not accessible to everybody, which I think is one of the big problems. We can tell somebody, yeah, eat a whole foods diet. And they're like, well, I live next to a 7-Eleven. I don't really have a lot of whole foods uh, near me. So that becomes then a social justice issue, right? That becomes an environmental justice issue. So there's so much to it beyond saying eat more vegetables or um, this, these are the things that you should eat when people don't have access to the things that we often hope that they will eat more of. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I know that you've been focusing a little bit recently also on marginalized communities and how climate change impacts marginalized communities and how sometimes people who have never been at the table to make decisions should be invited to that table to be making decisions for for the public health. So do you mind describing a little bit of that connection as to how marginalized communities are affected by climate change and what impacts that has, and then also why we need to offer them a seat at the table? Yeah, I mean, and this, this could probably be a whole podcast episode, right? I would say if we're looking at this from a global perspective and then we're looking at this from a local perspective, it, it can be a, a different point of view or a different uh, set of, of conditions and circumstances. If we just take a huge step back, we know that uh, in general, people who are from, let's say, de developing countries and very often who, are, who have been marginalized um, are very often the, the, the folks who are contributing the least to the global greenhouse gases, right? So that's an issue in itself. And, and therefore, but they are often the ones who are more affected because they are living in areas that, that uh, where drought and flood is going to affect their infrastructure and um, their, their food supply. And we're seeing this, you know, across uh, all across Africa, where food security is, a, is an enormous issue. If we bring it back to just you know, to the states, um, we know that many marginalized communities are living in in areas where they don't have access to green spaces, uh, where they don't have access to um, to 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 places where they can go and 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 be cooler. So when we have massive heat waves um, or wildfires, there is often not a, an easy escape, or it's hotter in areas where there is an urban setting because the 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 the, the heat will. Will will not be as well absorbed when there's tons of cement as it would be when there was when there's when there's trees. Um, additionally, a lot of marginalized communities are the very people who are working outside, who are working um, in, in farms, who and those are very often uh, migrant workers or people of color, and and so there's a disproportionate effect just because they aren't the ones who get to stay home from work. Um, they're the ones who are who are actually breathing in the air that is. Uh, 
filled with carcinogenic material from, from wildfires or particulate matter that's affecting lung function. So and there's there's things there's things like that. I mean, there's there's so many pieces that that we could discuss here. I also have to say, you know, when we think about our food system, this is a little bit of a different direction, but along the same lines, because again, it's all connected. We know our food system and agricultural system contributes to climate change. If we think about our food system and the way that it operates, even from something like the pollution that it um, it generates, whether that's plastic production and who's living near those plastic production facilities, very often marginalized communities, when there are CAFOs, which are concentrated animal feeding operations that are housing millions of animals um, that are producing massive quantities of manure, the, the pollution in those areas is very detrimental to health and who are often living in those areas. Black, indigenous, people of color, uh, very often, or lower socioeconomic uh, folks. So there's there's just a, a continuum of discrimination and um, disproportionate impact that that occurs for these communities. And why do we need them to have a seat at the table? Is this next question you had? Well, my goodness, as I mentioned, number one, very often these are the people who are contributing the least to these greenhouse gases and affected the most by some of these issues. And if we look at indigenous communities, so often they have been working in a way that has been in concert with nature, uh, working in a way that understands how to contend with some of these climate changes, how to contend with some of these extreme weather patterns. So they have wisdom. They have ways of knowing that go way beyond our randomized controlled trials and really look to their experience of living in this world way before we came over here in the United States and colonized this country. Um, so my goodness, they have ways of understanding nature that we can't possibly really, really fully comprehend until we make sure that their voices are being listened to and that their input is, is there. So um, again, that's just this is just the beginning of what I will, I would hope would be a larger conversation for people as they as they take these uh, these points home to their communities and talk about them. Thank you for addressing those issues. I think it's a it's a huge, hugely important topic. And like you said, everything is connected. So it's really hard to separate food justice and agriculture from like social justice and just health in general. We had Dr. Enrique Salmon on our podcast, and he's an ethnobotanist from an indigenous background. And he was saying, uh, because we're all so gung-ho about regenerative ag right now, I'm working on some policy regarding regenerative ag, and I think it's a great solution to both human health and planetary health. Because like you said, the soil can bring in carbon, and if the soil's healthy, then the plants are healthy. So again, very circular. But he said that he wrote a piece on the term regenerative ag, and that it's funny that we started using it because that's just traditional ways of, of farming. Like they have been doing this right. kind of farming for thousands of years. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a, there's a movement of folks who like to sort of claim like, Oh, we've, we've discovered this thing called regenerative agriculture and all these indigenous communities are, are saying, this is, this is just how we farm, you know, our whole lives. And, this is and farming. <laughs> this is farming. This is, you know, you, you work in concert with nature, you work to build the health of the soil so that you have healthy plants and you have a continued healthy crop, you know, for years to come. And I think, you know, the, the term that I really like to use is agroecology, which is, um, you know, maybe a, a broader and, a, and a, an umbrella term under which regenerative agriculture falls. And, and I love this term because it, it's more than just about Oh, we're using cover crops, we're using crop rotation, we're composting, we're, we're incorporating livestock as part of the, the system. But it is also a movement to empower um, peasants. And I say peasants not in any kind of derogatory name. Peasants often call themselves peasants very proudly. You know, there's a, a movement called La Via Campesina, which is um, a, a movement of peasants trying to re-empower themselves to be able to have access to land, to have food sovereignty, to be able to grow their own food in the way that they have grown for, as you mentioned, centuries, thousands of years. So, yes, I really appreciate the fact that you said that because it is key that, you know, as white people, as as but as colonizers um, who are bringing back, I should say it's former colonizers, I, I 
you know, unless it's a, it's a controversial um, term for some people, but um, you know, bring, bringing back these these basic concepts of how do we treat the land, how do we grow our food? Many people have been growing it that way for so many years, and let's look to them to to continue that that uh, that process. Absolutely. So um, I want to shift topics a little bit, and you specifically wrote a book called The Microbiome Diet Reset. Yes. Um, I think it's super fascinating that you focused your diet book um, as targeting the microbiome. So can you explain to us why the microbiome is so important and why you decided to focus on this for your book? Why is the microbiome so important? It is fundamental to pretty much every system in our body. So it has a profound influence on our health. It is not just about digesting and absorbing your nutrients, although that is a key component of it. It affects your brain health. It affects your blood sugar. It affects uh, your cholesterol levels. It actually produces vitamins and minerals. It uh, uh, neutralizes carcinogens that come into the body. So it has a huge amount of, of, uh, of, of roles in our body. And the reason why it's so important that we connect it to diet or to food is because it is essentially breaking down our food for us and creating incredibly important things called short chain fatty acids that nourish our gut lining and uh, help us to prevent all kinds of, of issues with our digestive health. So the microbiome, maybe I should also just take a step back and say that is the all of the wonderful bacteria, uh, good bacteria, beneficial bacteria, and some not so great bacteria that live in our guts and our in our in our small and large intestines, um, mostly in our large intestine that are um, and the microbiome is also including their genes. So these are trillions of little gut bugs that live in there and uh, and help us to survive and thrive. And they are their lives and their ability to thrive and survive is dictated by what we eat. And to reset your microbiome, is it more than just probiotics and sauerkraut? <laughs> yes, it really is. I mean, I think those things can definitely help. And I, I include those as, as, uh, as options to, to try and get more of, but it really is the dietary pattern on the whole. It's, it's, uh, it's about a number of things. It's about what you're including, but it's also about what you're minimizing. So we need more fiber in the diet. That is those, uh, that's the food that our gut bugs just absolutely love. Uh, and fiber is found in, you know, your, your beans, your grains, uh, yeah, these are your whole grains, your nuts, your seeds, your fruits, your vegetables. Uh, and then it's things like, uh, plants and, and, uh, that are highly colored, uh, all these wonderful bright colored fruits and vegetables, herbs and spices contain these things called phytochemicals, which I mentioned earlier. These are plant chemicals, chemicals, meaning like good chemicals, not like your Windex, your Ajax that you're cleaning your toilet with. These are chemicals that are actually conferring beneficial protective effects to our bodies. We know that when people have more phytochemicals in their diet, that actually is helpful to um, increase the number of beneficial bacteria in the gut and reduce the number of pathogenic or bad bacteria in the gut. So there, those are just a couple of the things that are a couple of the food groups, but it's omega-3 fatty acids. These guys uh, really thrive on omega-3 fatty acids as well and don't do so well with the poor quality fats. Don't do so well with the highly refined carbohydrates. Uh, don't do so well with high amounts of meat and processed meat. So it really is about this balance, what we include and what we choose to minimize. I try not to say the word exclude or avoid because I feel like as soon as people hear those words, they're like, oh, I'm not avoiding that. You know, I don't want to exclude anything. You know, I try and be very inclusive overall, but minimizing some of those foods can be beneficial to uh, the health of the gut microbiome. Thanks for explaining that. Um, and something that I thought was kind of interesting that we made a TikTok on recently was the difference between prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics, because those can be really confusing. Mm. The probiotics are the actual bacteria. The prebiotics is what's feeding those bacteria, like all the good fibers, like you mentioned, or like inulin, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. a prebiotic. And yes. then the postbiotic is what the bacteria make after digesting and eating that food. And that can be like nitric oxide or short chain fatty acids, like you were chatting about. So I just wanted to to describe those terms because I think that they can be used and people get confused because it's like, what's pre, pro, post? <laughs> so, Yeah, 
I think it is confusing and I'm glad you did. I love your TikTok (laughs) videos. They're so much fun and so, so educational in a way that's really accessible. And there's another term called symbiotics, which is very often used in the supplement industry where they will combine prebiotics with probiotics so that you are giving your, your, your gut an opportunity to be fed and also be joined by some friends. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. I actually hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. And you can find that in food too. I mean, if you have, you can, you can have sauerkraut, right. Or you could have, uh, you could eat sauerkraut, which does have some probiotics in it. And then you can also have, they also are are prebiotics as well. I mean, something like a cabbage is naturally a prebiotic as well, because it also provides fiber. Yeah. And so how does the microbiome, how does a healthy microbiome affect our immune system or an unhealthy microbiome affect our immune system? Yeah. So, I mean, I, the, the, the microbiome is, is about 70% of our immune system lives in our microbiome. So it's one of our first lines of defense beyond our, our mouths where we might spit things out or our noses, we might smell something and go, Oh, I probably shouldn't eat that or drink that. But our, our gut microbiome is the place where, uh, as I mentioned, carcinogens are neutralized, but also there's a whole bunch of, of, of factors that are connected to your immune system that come from your, your gut bacteria. And so when we are not feeding our good ba- bacteria, when we have too many bad bacteria, our immune system can be affected. And this can be just in terms of our ability to be resilient and respond to, to, uh, to, to issues surrounding like sickness and illness or, or uh, pathogenic things that come into our, into our world. Um, but it also can be about autoimmunity, right? So our, many people are struggling with autoimmune diseases and uh, that can be directly correlated with a poor microbiome status. And we call this dysbiosis and dysbiosis is the term that's referring to a in, imbalance in your gut bacteria. So not enough good bacteria and too many bad bacteria is known as dysbiosis. And when people are struggling with dysbiosis, this imbalance uh, very often we will see uh, autoimmune issues arise. We will see a less resilient immune system so that people get sick more readily or have worse outcomes when they do get sick. We can relate this even to something like COVID. Um, I mean, looking back now at the research, they are finding that people who had worse outcomes, and again, this is not across the board, there's always gonna be exceptions and outliers here, but very often those who had worse outcomes, those who fared not as well, or who struggled more with the, with this, with the, the, with the issue, had more dysbiotic um, issues in, in their gut, um, had a less resilient microbiome. So I think we're gonna see again, more research coming out on this. And what are the, what are the connections between the status of the microbiome and how well people fare uh, as it relates to all kinds of chronic diseases, including some of these epidemics that we're seeing right now. And I'm really glad that there's more research coming out on the root cause to a lot of these illnesses because we really want to prevent disease. And a lot of times our medical system is really good at treating acutely and we don't think as much about like the preventative aspect. So if we have a healthy microbiome, maybe it can protect us from a whole bunch of different factors that we don't have to use like one specific medication for. Um, So I really like that, that there's more research coming out on that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, preventive medicine is, is so, it's so key to our survival and to, to the way that we will thrive as human beings for so long. And, and here's the tough thing. It is hard to prove that you prevented something, right? You can't, you can't morally or ethically take two people and do one thing for one and not do one for another and, and, uh, and, and see how it turns out, um, you know, especially to do something that's, that's, that's bad. But um I think you know when it comes to preventive medicine, it is so it's so helpful for us to think about what can we do to help people maintain their health as opposed to what do we do to help prevent disease. Let's let's talk about like how do we maintain a vitality? How do we encourage people and ensure that people have access to the tools that they need to support their health as to, as opposed to just how do we treat this disease once it happens? Absolutely. And prevention doesn't really make that much money. That is true. That is true. And, and can I mention something else here, Amanda, because I want to bring this back to the environment because it's all about the environment and how the environment also affects the microbiome and immunity. So if we go back to the soil, I'm going to bring us back to the soil because as I mentioned, remember the soil is or should be teeming with microorganisms. It's the foundation. Yes, indeed. Um, when the soil is teeming with microorganisms, that has an impact on the health of the plant. So this affects 
our gut microbiome in several ways. When we use a lot of fertilizers, when we use a lot of pesticides, like we do in our current industrial model, the plant gets lazy. It's like, oh, I don't need to do much work. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to, uh, to, to really do a lot of uh, the things that I would normally do. So the plant content, um, the nutrient content of that plant, the phytochemical content of that plant is going to be lower. So then when we consume that, that plant, we don't have the same access to those phytochemicals that our gut microbiome uses to, 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 to survive and thrive. So that's one way. But also the application of a lot of these agrochemicals out there, fertilizer, as well as um, herbicides, as well as pesticides or insecticides, fungicides, that can also have an impact on our gut. Number one, because there will be fewer microorganisms on that plant. And whether people know it or not, when you consume a raw carrot, when you consume a raw piece of asparagus, you are consuming some microorganisms. Yes, you are. I know you may not think that you are, but you are. And those microorganisms, these are good microorganisms because a plant has a microbiome too. Those are feeding into our gut as well. Um, and then when we are eating foods that may have some pesticide residues, that may also have an impact. I think we're still understanding what this actually means. Um, that may have an impact on the, the life of the, the, the good bacteria that live in our guts as well. So we have to keep on going back to the health of our microbiome is also not just contingent on what we eat, but on the way that what we eat was grown and, um, and, the, and the chemicals that were used and the, and the health of that soil. So it, um, and that is including our immunity as well. So it really is a, a complex uh, situation, but one that I think we have to really understand in order to, to work with some of the chronic conditions that we're seeing that are directly correlated with our, the health of our gut microbiome. Absolutely. And something that I wanted to touch on too is there are people who are really concerned about the climate and then they hear like, okay, the climate is an existential threat. I want to do something myself. Um, and so they take on dietary patterns that are promoted as being climate savvy. And then there's a, a bunch of different theories. And um, are there any misconceptions about diet and the climate that you um, would like to discuss? Yeah. I mean, I think I never want to take away this idea that an individual's choices can make a difference because I believe they can. I don't believe that we, we, we're probably beyond the point. We definitely are beyond the point that like having a veggie burger once a week is going to save the planet. That is no longer even remotely possible. But I do believe that our awareness, our, our, our intentionality about the way that we live in the world, whether it's about what we choose to buy, what we choose to advocate for, um, how we choose to uh, to shop, uh, what we choose to, to do in our kitchens, all of that can make a difference. It may not be the thing that like saves the planet, but if, if you're able to reduce uh, plastic consumption in your community, that makes a difference in your community. If you're able to access a farmer's market and support local agriculture that is not using all the agrochemicals and the industrial uh, model techniques that are destroying the soil and hurting the environment. That makes a difference in your community. If you are able to advocate for policies that may have a positive impact on the environment, no matter whether those policies are federal, local, or institutional, or maybe it's a policy in your own household. Maybe you're like, we got a policy, new policy here. We're eating, you know, we're eating more vegetables, uh, or we're buying, we're buying more uh, regeneratively grown vegetables, or more agroecologically grown vegetables. So I, I think the idea that somehow, you know, small differences or small changes don't make a difference, I, I think is is uh, is not is not true. I don't think it's gonna it's gonna save the world, but um, it it can actually have an impact on local communities. And when we think local, we actually are are also translating that to a more global and systemic and institutional change. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. And I really do think too, um, with the rise of social media and, and the internet and Twitter conversations, it's ha um, hard to touch upon the nuance, which is why we call our podcast The Nuance, because there's yes. a lot of grayscale um, in between, especially I've had a couple of guests on this podcast who talk about regeneratively raised meat and the consumption of meat, because sometimes there's a misconception that 
if we are completely vegan or vegetarian, that's the solution to um, planetary health. And some people just don't do well health-wise on a vegetarian or vegan diet. But if we are able to grow our meat regeneratively like we are our plants, then it can actually be beneficial to the planet because there's some places where you can't even grow plants um, and that the the animals can graze on and then they can produce a lot of like nutrients and calories for for society but it's also like how much are we consuming and how is it raised and uh so there's a lot of grayscale in there it's so nuanced (laughs) um and i'm so glad the title of your podcast is a nuance because i i feel like i use that word all the time and it really does depend on where we are talking about so if we we were to say or someone to say like everyone should go vegan that is simply not realistic. Um, and, and this is not to say that someone who is vegan should not continue to be vegan. Absolutely. If that is the path that that person is on, I embrace it. I honor it. I, I say wonderful. But we cannot expect every community to be able to engage in those kinds of dietary patterns when, number one, it's not culturally appropriate. It's not accessible. Um, it's not possible. And, and it might not be actually good for that person's uh, community. Maybe they, as you mentioned, they need nutrient dense foods. And one of the only ways they can get that is through the the cattle they're raising or through the the pigs that they are raising. And we have to honor that as well, despite our feelings around, um, you know, how animals are treated. And very often in some of these communities, animals are actually treated well um, and and are part of the system and perhaps maybe they have one bad day uh, and, uh, and and then they wind up being able to contribute to the system and to the health of that that, that community or, the, or that family. The, the other thing that is important is that no matter what, and, and numerous studies have come out on this. So, I mean, I, there, I, I have no qualms about saying this, which is that in more developing countries, in more higher income countries, the need to reduce meat production and meat consumption is imperative. Um, this is not talking, I'm not talking about reducing meat consumption in Somalia or reducing meat consumption in, in low, low income countries. But here in the United States, we are producing 568% more meat than we are recommending in our dietary guidelines. Let me say that again. We are producing 568% more meat than we are recommending that we consume for health benefits or health in general. So that is a huge discrepancy. And that meat is almost always produced in an industrial model that is absolutely terrible for the environment, terrible for the the surrounding communities, terrible for the animals, and usually is producing a poor quality meat that is higher um, in omega-6 fatty acids. I'll put that out there as well. with the with the caveat that there's a need to be inclusive and a need to reach people where they are at and work with accessibility, but ultimately systemically, the need to reduce meat is uh, is truly imperative if we if we want to uh, make a difference in our planet's health. Yeah, and uh, that point also that you made about like the more omega six fatty acids and the the way that we raise meat is just poor quality meat, and if you are looking to purchase meat. And if you can afford it, um, grass-fed meat is always a, a little bit better just because there are a little bit more omega-3s and um, they're not raised in stressful, like horrible environments that uh, are contributing to climate change. And so we touched a little bit upon what individuals can do to address both their health and the climate. Um, what are some policy changes that you're most excited about or think that are is necessary to address planetary and human health? So one of the biggest ones is one that just just happened this past week, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which has all kinds of benefits for increasing uh, wind power and 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 more green energy. But specifically, it has a section around sustainable agriculture. So it is increasing funds for farmers to have more techniques that that are more conservation related. Um, it's increasing uh, the, the ability for people to grow food in a way that is more environmentally friendly. So this is in the house right now. I'm not sure when this, this will air, but you know this is something that people, and this is a bipartisan act. So this is something that people can really get on board with and, and, and help their Congress people to understand is really imperative to, uh, to, to pass. So that's a really big one. But there are other smaller acts that like are out $20 there. $20 billion. I know. Oh, come on. It's amazing. And, and 
I think all of us have taken a little bit of a deep breath, but not too big of a deep breath. We got still more work to do, but um, that was a, a shallow breath. A shallow breath. Like a, ah, okay, I can, I can at least breathe again. Um, but there are many other acts in Congress right now, too. There's a huge um, movement called Regenerate America, also bipartisan, which is looking at the Farm Bill, which is this, again, huge uh, uh, bill that is uh, funding so much of agriculture, but also of SNAP benefits. And that is specifically geared towards, a, it's a campaign that is trying to get regenerative agriculture more looked at in the farm bill to increase funding and access and resources and education around how to grow in a way that is more regenerative. So that's key, regenerateamerica.com. You can go to that. But then there's smaller bills. There's like the Zero Food Waste Act to help reduce food waste. There's the uh, Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act uh, to reduce plastic consumption, which we know is contributing to greenhouse gases. There is one called the Healthy Future Food and Students, or the Healthy Future Students and Earth Act, which is helping to bring more plant-based food options to the school lunch program. Again, a bipartisan act that is looking to make sure that kids have more access to foods that may be more culturally appropriate for them. So it's about equity. It's about climate change. And it's about reducing um, the, the environmental impact of, of more meat-based products. So there's those. But I want to also continue to like tighter it down to the local level. If someone's working at an institution, a hospital, there are policies that can happen there. There are a food procurement acts that can that can occur that you're going to only procure food at, from in your hospital from 100 miles away or 500 miles away instead of you know 6,000 miles away. Um, there's there's you know the there's there's things that you can do at at, at your school uh, where if somebody is a parent uh, they can begin to say hey I want to make sure that we are having a community garden that we that we raise funds to have a community garden so kids are actually interacting with nature. As I mentioned, you can have a policy in your home that we're going to eat plant based meals five times a week. So. Policy does not have to be this thing out there that I think a lot of people go like, Ugh, policy, I don't understand. I can't, I, I, I'm going to shut down. It can be very, very local. And it can be about you just working with your congressperson, your local city council person, your partner, your kids, and creating and advocating for the policies that are ultimately going to affect both planetary health in a positive way and human health. And very often those are in sync. What helps the planet, what is good for the environment is almost always good for human health. Thank you for describing it that way. I think <laughs> it's really easy to shut down when you hear the word policy, but like you said, it can be at any level. And it really is just like an advocacy in order to change things on a broader scale than just your own individual choices. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So Lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Ah, uh, um, the future is, the future is going to be determined by our actions and also by our compassion, our empathy, our understanding, and our ability to build community because individual action and individuals can be strong, but I believe that as a community, we can truly be a force. I love that. Thank you. I actually um, journaled on the importance of community this morning. <laughs> Really? Yes, I, All right. Uh, I recently learned, so there's been a lot more aggression recently, even in the clinics, and they've had to put up signs saying like, please don't be aggressive to staff in, in certain locations, just because uh, people are just more on edge. And when you become isolated, you actually produce more tachykinin, which is substance P, which is essentially something that makes you more anxious, depressed, aggressive. And so isolation and people being alone, which we've had a lot the last couple of years, um, creates these more aggressive behaviors or depressed or anxious behaviors. And community is so important, not only for our mental health, but for like what you were saying as like group actions. And it's, it's just so important to, to really build a group, um, that you can trust and rely on. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm curious from your perspective as a, as a doctor, how do you speak with your patients about these kinds of issues around their mental health and community building? 
Yeah, I think even in the United States, most people don't even have one person to reach out to. So it's really just joining groups. A lot of people have moved away from like going to church or doing group activities like that. So if you can get involved in any type of like group activity, that's really important. A lot of people are starting to move towards group-based therapies. And so you have, you're connected with people who um, are dealing with the same type of like disease process uh, that you are. So you can have a community around that. It's really just to reach out to anyone who you feel a connection with. I think it's always important, like when you're passing someone on the street, even just to like acknowledge people because people just really want acknowledgement and that can help a little bit as well. Just any type of like human connection that you can get. Mm. Yeah, it's and you you can feel the difference. I know when I spend a day in front of my computer and I spend a lot of days like that, I feel different than I do on a day when I have communed with others, eaten with others, gone for a walk with somebody. I I just feel different at the end of the day and I imagine either it's the the uh, the tacky kind in um little tacky kind in kicking in um <laughs> wait the tacky kind is the bad stuff or the good bad stuff? stuff the bad stuff i'm oh, sorry the little tacky kind in going down <laughs> um a, a little endorphins going up um so uh so yeah so thank you for that perspective as well yeah um and i i'm reading a book by an indigenous leader who's also an MD and he talked about how he has like allopathic training and then also he does some ceremony still from his um, Lakota background and Cherokee background and he was saying that you heal as a community even if it's one individual everyone um, participates and also gives like uh, monetary contributions to a ceremony because you know that Mm. if that individual heals then it heals the community as well. I mean, that makes so much sense, right? I mean, you, you think I, I even go back to the gut microbiome, like they, all those bacteria are working in concert with one another. It's not like someone's like, Hey, I'm going to get more food than you are. It's like, no, no, we're all, we're getting all this food together. We're going to share in that idea of a gift economy, which, um, is, is so, is so, uh, relevant and so, uh, ca- characteristic of indigenous communities and something that I strive to, to, as a, as a white person to really better understand and, um, and embrace myself. So I, I, looked, I look to the wisdom of indigenous people to, to feel hope in the world. Me too. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being on our podcast. This was a really wonderful conversation. I love the work that you're doing. I really love your perspective. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Amanda. I, I really am so grateful. I had a chance to, to speak with you today and to hopefully, um, you know, offer some thoughts to people that might be helpful. So thank you. I really appreciate it. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the nuance and medicine explained and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified board certified practicing clinician.